Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to find the New Testament letter of Ephesians. And I want you to find Ephesians chapter 2. And when you find the book of Ephesians chapter 2 in your printed copy of God's Word, as I prefer, or perhaps you use an app on your phone, I want you to find the 14th verse. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. And this morning, we're going to work our way down through the 22nd verse of Ephesians chapter 2. We're in a sermon series called Glory. We began last week. I shared with you uh, Pastor Paul Tripp's definition of the doctrine of glory. The doctrine of God's glory encompasses the greatness, beauty, and perfection of all that he is. And we acknowledged last week that often it is the case, accurately and rightly, to focus on the humility of God in Christmas, that he came to a lowly manger, had peasant parents, the world received him not. And so we often talk about those aspects of it. But there's also a lot of glory in and around the birth of a king. And so we're focusing on the glory of Christ in Christmas, being amazed by the Christ of Christmas. And one of the things that comes up often in and around the Christmas season especially with believers, followers of Jesus, is the wonderful idea of peace. In fact, when the birth of Jesus is announced in Luke chapter 2, we all remember what is said. Glory to God. There's our sermon series. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Multiple times through the New Testament, God is called the God of all peace or the God of peace. But let's be real. Let, let's be honest. Let's not circumvent what we all know. Today in the world, universally, there's no natural peace. It may be peaceful here. You may have driven to church this morning or you may be sitting in your home looking out of a window of a living room. You'll see no inclement weather, but had you been in the Midwest, especially western Kentucky and southern Illinois and some parts of Arkansas just a few days ago, you, like many of those people, your life could have been devastated. We see natural disasters happening all around us, part of the creation's moaning and longing for a redeemer, hurricanes and tornadoes and things that are acts of God that we don't understand, but they are a part of creation in chaos. There's also no real global peace. Again, we have lived in a time of peace. I have never known, nor have you, war on United States soil, though we have experienced terrorism on United States soil. But somewhere today, there is war. There is conflict. We know that Russia is building a coalition of troops on the border of Ukraine. and Those types of global tensions seem to never end. Now, we do know there's no political peace. I think about just in my lifetime, the men and women who represented the two primary parties of the United States government and political system, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. Just one generation ago, those individuals would find no home in the current state of the political divide. We have seen a polarization and extremism on both sides. There's no social peace. We see rioting and looting and mass robbery and 
unrest. We know that many families are falling apart and foster care systems are overwhelmed. Department of Social Services in virtually every state will tell you they don't have enough homes to put the children that have to be removed from difficult situations, often related to drugs or violence. And there's no spiritual peace. The Bible makes no bones about that. We are in a spiritual war. In fact, the scripture would say you have to put on the full armor of God. There is not spiritual peace. There is a cosmic battle between good and evil. And all you have to do is look around you and see that internally people struggle with peace. We saw that unfold in our nation's lockdown. The pandemic saw a great increase in tension and anxiety and domestic struggles, all of which were there, uh, but the change and the lack of order and routine and freedom that people had experienced brought it to a head. And so on one hand, I'd love the idea of peace on earth. But on the other, if we're going to be honest, and we really don't have anything to offer one another if we're not going to deal in honesty, where is this peace? And how do we deal with it as believers when we promise our Bible is true and our Bible teaches about peace and yet we don't see peace? peace. What I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to show you the biblical view of peace and the way you and I can connect the dots in true peace. Now there's a lot of places we could go, but Paul is writing to a church in Ephesus. And in Ephesus, they were primarily not Jewish. Anyone not Jewish is a Gentile. The vast majority of the room this morning, in fact, almost all of you, I'm sure, are Gentiles. Though we have members of our church that are of Jewish descent, we are Gentiles. And so in the scripture, there was a great divide between the Jews and the Gentiles. I'll explain it more. But when Christ came, he bridged that divide. He brought all men back to himself. And so Paul is writing this letter to the church in Ephesus, and he's trying to remind them of the journey that they have been on going from being outsiders to being insiders. If you have your Bible open to the book of Ephesians, look at verse 1 of chapter 2, not our text this morning, but look at verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Look at verse 11, the, the same idea. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. In other words, the Jews called you the uncircumcised. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. He goes on to say in verse 12, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. So Paul is building an argument. He's saying, I want to remind you of the before picture and the complete and total lack of peace you had with God's chosen people, the Jews, and with the Jews' God, God of heaven. In other words, you didn't have peace with mankind and you didn't have peace with God. And then we get to verse 14. And it is in verse 14 that we really begin to understand his glorious peace. Look what he says. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace, there comes that word again, 
and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Notice the irony there. Through his killing, he did the killing. And he came and preached, here comes our word again, peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And here's the reasoning. So that when you are no longer, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Verse 21, I'll end there. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Peace, peace, peace. Why? When we come to Christmas, do we celebrate a Savior and his glorious peace? Let me give you three reasons. His peace is glorious because he is the person of peace. Notice what verse 14 says. This is interesting and important. He says, for he himself is our peace. Before Paul ever talks about how Christ made peace, brought peace, gave peace, offers peace, he says, before I get there, let me tell you, he is our peace. Peace is a person, not a place or an idea, not a utopic desire. It's a person. We see this echoed through Scripture. Think about the prophet Isaiah. Probably no prophet preached more of the coming Messiah in his prophecies. We read this often around the Christmas story. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. We understand that as a messianic promise. This is Isaiah prophesying hundreds of years before Jesus under the inspiration of the Spirit about the Messiah he believes God is going to deliver. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, here it comes, Prince of Peace. Later in the same book, the book of Isaiah, chapter 52. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes what? Can we not have a little audience participation this morning? Who publishes peace who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation. By the way, I wish every news network in our nation would make this their vision statement. Who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Just one more at the end of Isaiah 57, 19. Peace, peace to those far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. So, there's this idea in the redemptive story of God, the story that spans from Genesis to Revelation. When you study it, it's called the meta-narrative. Meta means big, narrative means story. So we could say the meta-narrative, or we could say the big story of redemption. It's the same thing. When you study the meta-narrative of God's redemptive plan, one of the primary aspects of sending Jesus, sending the one we celebrate during the time of Christmas was to bring peace. But he didn't bring peace as an idea, as a theory, as a form of social reform, as a government. No, no, no. 
He didn't bring peace as a philosophy. He brought peace in himself. He himself is our peace. I want you to remember that because I'm going to come back to it. I'm moving fast for a reason. Secondly, not only is he our peace, he accomplished the process of peace. Look how the verse unfolds in verse 14. For he himself is our peace. Now, what did he do? Well, what he did is based on who he is. Look what it says the, about the fifth word or sixth word. For he himself is our peace who has made us. So he made something. What did he make? Us both one. Now, remember who Paul's talking about. He's talking about the Jews and the Gentiles who were divided. Divided spiritually, divided theologically, divided socially, divided politically. There was a great deal of tension between Jew and Gentile. In fact, what rocked the early church in the book of Acts is that the Holy Spirit was redeeming and filling and baptizing. That's what happens when you're saved. You get baptized with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was coming to live in Gentiles. And many of the Jews didn't know what to do with this. And there was a great debate about it. And of course, the gospel won. And men like Peter and Paul and others let out in recognizing that it's for the Jew and the Gentile that Christ came to save all people. How did he do this? By making peace. How did he make peace? By taking the two categories of mankind, Jew and Gentile, and making them one. I'll explain a little further in just a moment. Look at the verse. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh. This is why we celebrate Christmas. Christmas is not the sending of an idea. Christmas is not the sending of a scroll or a book or a vision or an angelic messenger. All those are in Scripture. Christmas is the sending of the flesh and blood of Jesus. He broke it down in his flesh. What did he break down? Look how it unfolds. Who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That's a little bit figurative. There was a wall that divided the Gentile area of the temple. There was an outer court where Gentiles were allowed to come and to worship the God of heaven, but oftentimes it was also filled with a lot of merchants and money changers, and it lacked the reverence and the sacredness where only Jews were allowed. That wall, metaphorically, figuratively, if you will, represented a greater spiritual divide, and Jesus broke it down. By abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in the ordinance that he might create in himself one new man. So he took Jew and he took Gentile and he said, no, 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 we're all one. We're just people. And then he says that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. You know, when you think about political tension or military tension, often diplomats will talk about how you have to be patient in the peace process. The peace process. We've been involved in peace processes for years. I mean, think about just in the lifetime of many of your grandparents. Most people thought World War I would be the end of world wars. In fact, World War I wasn't called World War I until World War II happened. And there were many people who thought World War I was so devastating and the destruction was so horrific and the use of what they called modern-day weaponry and mustard gas was so terrible that afterwards many thought this will be the end of war. 
only to find Nazi Germany and the Axis powers had a different idea. And so in World War II, we watched Europe be destroyed. We saw it spill over into, of course, the Middle East and the South Pacific. And our grandfathers went and fought along with many, many others to set the world free from a power that was terrible, that was evil, and wicked. And after that, many peace accords were done. Germany was divided, West Germany, East Germany. We saw people and nations put their interest aside. For example, Russia and the United States both worked together to defeat Nazi Germany and Hitler and did so. But just as soon as that was over and all of the pacts were made and all of the divisions were divided, we, fought, we saw the beginning of what became known as the Cold War, a war of tension in the peace process. And right as we see the Cold War ending under Ronald Reagan standing there telling Mikhail Gorbachev, tear down this wall, what do we find? Peace in the Middle East is hard to come by. And then we see in my generation, I remember being in elementary school and middle school when the first conflicts of Desert Storm began to unfold. And since then, there's been multiple conflicts and multiple points of tension. And then there are nuclear agreements or dialed backs with terrorist rogue nations like Iran and so on and so forth. And what we're told is the peace process, the peace process, the peace process. It's long, and diplomats will tell you that it can be complicated complicated and convoluted. There is a process to it. There's a process to how God brought peace. You know there's a process to everything. There's sequence. Some of them aren't enjoyable. You know the worst three words on Christmas Eve? Some assembly required. Now listen, I'm all about the big guy from the North Pole, love Santa Claus, certainly don't want to ever destroy any visions of grandeur among the little ones. But Santa Claus works in different ways. Sometimes he requires a little help from mom and dad to put things together that he brings to the children. I read an article this week in preparation by a, a young lady named Melissa Fenton, and she outlined in a hilarious blog the stages of Christmas Eve toy assembly. She said at 11 p.m., it's denial. It won't be that bad. Won't be that bad. At one, it's blame. And I can tell you I've been in the blame game, mainly spewing the blame. At two, it's reminiscing how awesome it was before you had children. You just went to bed. At three, you're done having children. Mainly because your own marriage is about destroyed. And somewhere around four, she writes, in a comical treatment, you accept the reality that this is not going to get solved unless you get to work. Last year, I was aiding Santa Claus and helping assemble my little girl, a little farmhouse playhouse. This is a 1 a.m. picture. I'm going to tell you something. There's no pastoral love in that man's heart. (laughs) You would not have been impressed impressed by his attitude. And I have to be honest with you, sometimes his language on that cheap playhouse. 
I posted that picture, and one of my smart aleck members posted this one beside it. You know who you are. Better hook me up with a gift card this year or something. Sometimes things have to be built. There has to be process. For fear of losing the sequence, let me outline what Paul is talking about here. You will be frustrated if you are a note taker, but don't worry, I'll post the list later. If we were to take the redemptive peace that Christ brought and pair that with the plan that God unfolded with his people all the way back at creation, I believe we would come up with an assembly of 13 steps. Here they are. Number one, all people are created by God. That's the creation. Number two, all people are corrupted by sin. That's the fall. Genesis 1, Genesis 2, creation. Genesis 3, the fall. And if you want to read the implications of the fall sometime in your devotion this week, read Genesis 3 and see how the tentacles and the cancer of sin will affect all mankind. Third, one person is chosen by God to begin that meta-narrative, that redemptive story. His name is Abraham. He is given a covenant by God. So God chose one man to begin forming a people for himself, which leads to number four. His people, Abraham's people, are in a covenant with God. These are what will become the Jews, the Hebrews, and they are given the law of God, which outlines his holiness and the obligations and the requirements of his people. He's chasing the heart of his people by giving them the law. Number five, these people are commissioned by God through the covenant to bless the nations. They're not to hoard God. They're not to look down their noses at the unrighteous. They are to make known the glory of God to the nations because of their special covenant relationship. But then if we unfold this manual even more, number six, these people are corrupted by sin. They rebel. If you want a picture of that, I remind you of what we have seen for the last year and a half in Jeremiah. They have rebelled against God. Their created purpose has been pushed against. Instead of blessing all people, they have become arrogant and self-righteous and been corrupted by sin. We see this leading into the end of the Old Testament. Number seven, a few people, though, are still committed to God. Men like Isaiah and Jeremiah Men and women who seek after and love the Lord God of Israel. These are called the remnant. Inside of the remnant, number eight, these people, a certain number, are chosen by God. People like Mary and Joseph and Elizabeth and John the Baptist. People chosen to be a part of the Christmas story, which leads, of course, to number nine. To deliver one person the Christ of God, Jesus. Remember, he chose one man for a covenant with God, Abraham, and yet the Bible tells us there's a better Abraham. There's a new Abraham, and he is the Christ of God, Jesus. And just like Abraham was asked to be willing to offer his son, God, foreshadowing his own redemptive plan, 
offered his son, and yet he provided no substitutionary lamb for his son, for his son was the substitutionary lamb, which leads, of course, to the tenth step in the journey. This Christ is to bring a new covenant with God. God's desire for our lives is formalized in the law. It's summarized by love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. But it's realized by the Lord. It's Christ. It's Jesus, which leads, of course, to step 11. For all people created by God. So Abraham created a divide between Jew and Gentile. Jesus stepped in and pulled the divide together and said, the divide is no more. All people are valued by God. All people are able to and made to bring glory and honor to God according to his redemptive plan if they turn and repent, which of course means they must understand something. Number 12. To know they are all corrupted by sin. All people. Not just Gentile. Not just Jew. And here's the great news. This is the gospel. The 13th step. But called. All people are called. The salvation call is for any who would believe. To be cured by God. And then to be commissioned for God. This is the gospel. And this is what Paul is talking about here when he says he took what was two, Jew and Gentile, and he made them one. But even in making them one, there's really two steps. Step one is to make them one. Step two is to make them one with God, which is exactly why in the second part of verse 14, we read these words. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinance. How did he abolish them? He fulfilled them. He fulfilled them. That he might create in himself one new man in place of two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So Jesus is the person of peace. He accomplished the process of peace. Some assembly was required, and he built it beautifully. And finally, he's the preacher of peace. The third word of peace in this passage comes in verse 17. And he came and preached, what? Peace. To you who are far off, Gentiles. To you who are far off and peace to those who are near, Jews. What was the content of his sermon? When Jesus came preaching, proclaiming, speaking, God is not silent. He continues to speak today through the words of Jesus and the apostles and the prophets. What is the content of the message? What is the hope of the gospel? Here is the content of the sermon. We find it in verse 18. For through him we both have access in one spirit. So we have access in one spirit to the Father. So the sermon that Jesus preached with his life has two points. Jesus was obviously not Baptist. Has two points. Point number one. His sermon and the peace he preached reconciles our separation. Look, look what it says. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. 
So we now have access. We can go to the Father through the Holy Spirit because of Jesus. But then watch. Not only does it reconcile our separation, he redefines our status. Remember the word outsider and far off? What's the opposite of someone who you've never met? A complete and total stranger. Well, the opposite is someone you know intimately. What's the opposite of someone who does not live in your country or does not share your home? Well, the opposite would be someone who's a citizen of the country you live and a member of the household that you provide or that you stay in. They are your family. Many times they share your DNA. Perhaps they share your family name through adoption or the gift of foster care. But the people that were in your home when you woke up this morning are closer to you than the vast majority of the people you will interact with the rest of your day. We all have circles of intimacy. There are many people I have never laid eyes on and never met. I, like many of you, have had the privilege of meeting people all over the world. And I always value the opportunity to build new friendships and new relationships. But those friendships and those relationships pale in comparison to the people that live in my country the people that live in my state, the people that live in my community, and more importantly, the people that live in my home and share my name and eat my food and have my genetics. There is an intimacy there. And that was not in the life of the people that Paul was writing to until Christ. But in Christ and through the preaching of Christ, this is what happened to them. It begins in verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers meaning you were not known, and aliens, meaning you didn't have citizenship, you didn't belong, but you are fellow citizens. Your status has been changed. You are now a citizen, but it's better than that, with the saints and members of the household of God. So because of the peace of Jesus, you don't make heaven by the skin of your teeth. You're a citizen of heaven, and you're part of God's family. You're a brother and sister to every other person and a child of the king. And spiritually, we, though he is our Lord, the Bible also speaks of him being our brother. In other words, just as Jesus is the son of the father and we become sons of God and daughters of God in Christ, therefore our brother is the peacemaker. Of course, this doesn't diminish his lordship, but it's a beautiful picture of the familial connection. He goes on to say, beginning in the second phrase of verse 19, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now he begins to bring up the church. This is a reference to the body of Christ. Christ is the cornerstone. The church is compared at times uh, to the organic picture of a tree and the roots. The church is compared at times to the body of Christ, the biological picture. And then here the church is compared to the structural picture of a building being built. The foundation is the word of God, the apostles and the prophets. The cornerstone of the archway is Christ. And we're being built up into it, which is why he says in verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows, now he switches to the biological buildings don't grow, bodies do, grows into the holy temple of the Lord or a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. So when we say peace on earth, What do we mean? 
Remember that list I gave you just a few moments ago? Let's be real. There's no natural peace. Tornadoes killed people this week. People are dead. Funerals are being planned because of a horrific event. There's no global peace. Even if one conflict is resolved, somebody's plotting another one. There's no political peace. You just have to turn it off. It's never going to stop. There's no social peace. And in many people's lives, there's no spiritual peace. Now, that looks a little hopeless. But what about what I just explained? You know what this means to that? I may not know natural peace, but I know supernatural peace. Secondly, I may not know global peace, but I know heavenly peace. There's no war in heaven this morning. There's no tension there. Third, I may not know political peace, but I know kingdom peace. Aren't you glad there'll be no election cycles in heaven? You don't have to elect a king. He's not going to resign and you will never impeach him. I may, additionally, may not know social peace, but I know what it's like to have peace with my brothers and sisters in Christ. It doesn't matter someone's skin color, the language they speak, the status of their citizenship, the level on the chart of sociodemographic breakdown that they live in. If they know and love the Lord Jesus, I have more in common with them than I do the rest of the known world. And there is a peace and a community there that the world cannot touch. Finally, the world may not know spiritual peace, but I do. His name is Jesus. What did Jesus say just before his arrest? He said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Now, when was that said? That was said just before his arrest. How did he do that? He gave his peace because he gave himself. And who is he? Paul said, he is our peace. Richard Houston was a law enforcement officer killed in the line of duty. On Thursday in the state of Texas, they had his memorial service. His 18-year-old daughter, Shelby, stunned the crowd when she stood up and spoke. Standing on a stage much like ours in a large church, beautifully decorated for Christmas, this incredible young sister in the Lord, this incredible young woman of faith, stood up and honored her father. And then she shared the gospel when she said these words. All I can do is find myself hoping and praying for this man to truly know Jesus. Referring to the man who shot her father. Her father was killed. The man then attempted to kill himself and failed. He's in stable condition with a headshot, a wound, gunshot wound to the head. She said, I thought this might change if the man continued to live. But when I heard the news that he was in stable condition, part of me was relieved. This is the daughter of the police officer that the man she's referring to killed. She said, my prayer is that someday down the road, I get to spend some time with him 
with the man who shot my father. Not to scream at him, not to yell at him, not to scold him, but to simply tell him about Jesus. He is our peace. Until he returns, tornadoes are going to happen. Tumors will grow. Human relationships will be strained. Political and military struggle will not end. Sin will wreak havoc. But the moment someone receives Jesus, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard our hearts and minds if we bring our struggles to Him. There is no strength in Shelby Richardson who shared those words of incredible forgiveness on her own. It comes because she knows Christ. Do you know him? And if you do, are you allowing his peace to reign in you? Because could it be that the hope of Christmas peace on earth it's us we are the body of Christ it's the peace we bring into situations, the peace we promote, the peace we fight for the peace we share we are a vital piece of the peace that is promised through the Savior